Pay Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called Deliverance from Donors and is the fourth teaching in our First Corinthians series. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on October 9th, 2022. Thanks for listening. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, so in, uh, in 1956, uh, a Jewish woman by the name of Pauline Esther Friedman Phillips began writing a famous newspaper column, Dear Abby. Anybody read this at all? And does anybody have? Okay, there's like six of us. Uh, for those of you who don't know what newspapers are, imagine that someone got on the New York Times app and took screenshots and then printed it on toilet paper. Um, but uh, Dear Abby was uh, a pen name created. Uh, the pen name is actually Abigail Van Buren, as you can see. And uh, Pauline Phillips actually did this by stitching together two different names. First, Abigail from the biblical book of 1 Samuel, uh, this woman who marries King David and gives him crucial advice as he is kind of on his way to the throne. And also, the last name you may guess is a former U.S. president. Don't ask me why she picked Martin Van Buren, uh, but that's what she did. In 1990 alone, this advice column, Dear Abby and the staff, received over 55,000 letters from men and women of all kinds. Her readership was estimated to be somewhere around 150 to 200 million people. And people from all over the country would write to her to seek compassionate advice as if she were some kind of close friend or family member that could give it. I remember sitting in the kitchen in my parents' house and picking up the newspaper. And from time to time, I would go to this column. I would just look at it to see how she was going to answer these difficult questions. Questions about how somebody was trying to fix a fractured relationship questions about experiences of sexism or racism, questions about difficult situations at work or how to raise a child. And usually she responded with this mix of humor and grace and wit. And, and I think I liked it so much because I felt like I was reading someone else's mail. <laughs> it was a glimpse as, as a kid into the struggles and tensions of adulthood. It, it, was, it was like I was looking into another world, and I was always curious to see how this stranger, dear Abby, was going to respond. Now, today there are all kinds of other options. Like, I, I don't think that this column is still syndicated, but we have the internet. There are Reddit feeds and Quora and all other kinds of online things. I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot of experts on the internet. Uh, I had the unfortunate displeasure of learning this week that there is a site out there called Got Questions, and um, it's not the kind of questions you might be thinking of. This entire site is dedicated to fielding any and all questions you might have and giving you answers from the Bible. When you open up the homepage, the first thing you see is a statistic touting how many questions they've answered so far using the Bible, and apparently... If you're ever wondering, there are at least 707,207 questions that you can answer using the Bible, at least up to today. 
Of the top 20 questions on gotquestions.org, and I have selectively edited these. Number one, what does the Bible say about women pastors? (laughs) Don't read it, Molly. It's not great. Number three, what does the Bible say about tattoos? Number nine, do pets go to heaven? Number 13, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? These are the top 20 out of 707,000. Number 14, what does the Bible say about the importance of baptism? I don't know what it says about the, the urgency of pets going to heaven and dinosaurs over baptism, but that's apparently where we're at on gotquestions.org. It says a lot. And I don't want to be too harsh here. Because the Bible obviously does contain troves of wisdom and teaching and spiritual truths. There are plenty of questions that can be answered by the Bible. The Bible shows us how to grieve, how to take lament to God. It shows us how to disagree with one another and what things we might be able to disagree over. It teaches us how to get mildew out of our houses, if you read the book of Leviticus. But the problem is when we treat the Bible like a book full of answers for all of our questions. Uh, Much of the Bible was not necessarily written to give a definitive answer on all issues for all times. Instead, most of the biblical books are about responding to specific questions, specific crises at specific moments in history. This is especially true of the New Testament letters, these letters that were written to the early church, especially those by Paul. Um, And and sometimes these letters are what we call occasional, meaning that they were written for specific occasions, specific communities, specific circumstances that this community was dealing with. And for the last few weeks, we've been studying this New Testament letter of Paul, 1 Corinthians. And we haven't really had time to get into all of the weeds. There's so much that we could talk about when we talk about these letters that Paul wrote. But, but Paul, in writing this letter, specifically this one to the first Corinthians, he did not attempt to undertake some kind of theological masterpiece for all time. Uh, Paul is, uh, in many cases, just writing as he's hearing things. And I have to imagine that sometimes he hears something new and he's like in the middle of a paragraph and he's like, oh my gosh, I got to do this one now. Okay. But Paul is much like Pauline Phillips of Dear Abby, writing this letter to respond to particular questions from the Corinthian church and responding to particular reports that he had heard from members of that community This letter was written to address a particular occasion in the life of the Corinthian church. And this church was deeply divided. They were divided over who their favorite teachers were, over how they could exercise their freedoms and power at the expense of others. They were really having a lot of issues in this church. And so though we can gain insights from 1 Corinthians and we can extract principles and insights into our faith, Paul's not writing laws. He's not writing laws for everyone. His advice and his practices, even if you read all of the things that Paul wrote and even the stories about Paul, they change depending on the circumstance. So, I mean, generally, Paul was against Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, getting circumcised in order to come into faith. And yet he makes this exception for this one guy named Timothy. Poor Timothy. (laughs) 
In some letters, like in 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to think that Jesus is coming back any day. Jesus is going to return like maybe tomorrow and we got to be ready. And then in other places, it seems that Paul has modified his expectations. In some letters, Paul warns against certain women speaking or teaching. But in others, he references women in positions of leadership. Very few things about Paul are hard and fast across all the communities that he wrote to. Paul was not trying to develop a systematic theology. Paul was mostly haphazardly responding to the chaotic lives of early Christians across the Roman Empire, the way a parent is just trying to shovel breakfast down a kid's throat before dropping them off at school and not being late for work. The same is true of the passage that we're going to talk about today. Paul is responding to a very specific event in the Corinthian community, and it's really unlike anything else that we're going to read about ever in the New Testament. And our job this morning is not to answer 707,207 questions. Our job is to ask the right questions about what is going on in Corinth. Our job is to ask the right questions about what this means for us. So let's get into it. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So we sent an email out just letting you know that we are going to get into it this morning. So uh, we're here. Welcome to the new Netflix reality show, Too Hot to Handle the Corinthian Edition. <laughs> so, so Paul has heard this report, apparently, from somebody in this community. They've sent Paul a letter or sent someone to Paul telling him this, uh, that this man is sleeping with his stepmother. And in one of the weirdest Dear Abby type questions, they want to know what Paul needs them to do. So what's going on? Well, apparently there's a man sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, there are all kinds of explanations from commentators about what exactly is happening here. Um, either this man moved in with his stepmother after his father's death, which would still be a violation of some Jewish and Roman laws, or his father had divorced this woman and the son is now with her. It's possible that the son did this for financial reasons, like maybe she had some of his father's property that he wanted to acquire, and so he did this in order to gain financially. It's, it's not totally unheard of that somebody might pull a stunt like this to secure property or money. Uh, it's possible that this guy is just weird. <laughs> uh, uh, Paul, calls this, <laughs> Paul calls this union, uh, this Greek word porneia, which is a specific kind of uh, forbidden sexual act. It, it doesn't really just cover one thing. It covers a whole gamut of, of things. Uh, and interestingly enough, a person marrying or sleeping with a stepmother is a violation of both Roman law and Jewish law. Like this was against really any kind of written rule. Uh, Leviticus 20.11, for instance, says this. This is from the Old Testament. If a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Uh, so, you know, that's not great. But uh, <laughs> um, Paul, like uh, Pauline uh, in, in Dear Abby, is really writing uh, to help us understand and help these Corinthians understand what the heck they need to do. Because situations like this typically don't come up every day. 
most commentators think that the only, the reason that the man is the only one being singled out here is because maybe he was the only member of the Christian community. And so therefore is the only one that the church is trying to figure out what to do with. But I mean, the real question is, why wasn't the community doing anything about this? Like, do you really need to write Paul that letter? Do you need to send someone to Paul to be like, what should we do about this guy that's sleeping with his stepmother? This is something that's punishable by Roman law. It's illegal. And it's forbidden in Jewish law, which is the law that Christianity sort of looked to at times to figure out what to do. Paul is very upset with these Corinthians for not doing anything. Uh, Our friend Mike Frost has said that there are two kinds of Pauline letters. One which talks about that we are heirs through unfathomable grace to unimaginable glory. And the second kind is, I am as a personal favor begging you, sick little freaks, to act normal for five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) This would definitely fall within the second category. Paul, Paul really goes after them here. He says, and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put, on, put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So Paul's like, I'm not even there with you guys and I understand what's going on here. Remember that up to this point, Paul has been upset with this community because of their arrogance and their division, right? They're, they're, they're fighting with each other and they're proud and they're telling each other like, no, I'm the right one. I'm the one that's got this all figured out. And this is where their arrogance is coming from. So when Paul accuses them of being proud here, he isn't saying that they are arrogant and sexually liberated and that they're actually celebrating this guy and his stepmom who are living together. He says that they have no cause to think of themselves as spiritually mature. They have no reason to boast about their faith in any way when they refuse to address a messed up situation like this. That's really what Paul's upset with. And so despite their lack of discipline here, Paul is saying that he has already decided that this isn't okay, which for all of the hot takes of Paul, this is not one, I don't think. Uh, And he, he continues, He says, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Okay, there's a lot going on there. First of all, um, there may be a clue here uh, that some people pick up on as to why the Corinthians haven't been addressing this situation. Paul specifically addresses what happens when the people assemble, when they gather like we're gathering together in a house uh, to worship, to, to meet with each other, to take the Lord's Supper or the common meal, he tells the people that when they gather as a church, not only is Paul present with them in spirit, this, these other believers who aren't meeting with them, but the power of Christ is present. This Christ that has been crucified, this Christ that has been raised, this Christ that is their strength and their power that this Christ is present with them when they get together. Uh, One scholar named Derek McNamara suggests that what's really going on here is that this man in question is a high-status member of the church, maybe even a patron, a big giver, who may even be hosting one of the house churches at his own expense in Corinth. 
So this talk about when you assemble may be the clue that when they think they're assembling in the name of Jesus, they keep thinking about assembling in this guy's house. They keep thinking about assembling because this guy's the one that helps them pay the bills. This is perhaps what's happening here. And in Rome, all relationships had strings attached, especially these relationships that we call patronage or or patron relationships. Essentially, friendship in Rome was something that you paid for. The wealthiest, most influential people would secure friendships with other people from a lower social scale who paid them, gave them favors to be friends with them. The patron had all the power. The clients, the lower friends, would never ever want to shame the patron. But the patrons could dissociate with the client or shame a client if it benefited them. So if this man was a patron of the church, which several commentators seem to think that he may have been, it seems as though the Corinthians are afraid of doing anything to him because they are still playing by the rules of Roman patronage. Even though this man broke rules, even though he was bringing shame to the community, they didn't think they could do anything to him. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen anymore? Paul isn't nearly as upset with this sexual immorality, the porneia of the man, as he is about the cowardice of the Corinthian community to execute justice. Paul is upset with the Corinthians for playing in the power games of Rome rather than subscribing to the weakness of God in faith, this theme that he keeps hitting since chapter one, the weakness of God, the foolishness of God, the crucified Christ. And sadly, this is still going on today. The global church, but specifically in America, is known for protecting abusive leaders for fear of upsetting those with power. It's why the Southern Baptist Convention has a list of sexual abusers, but never published them or punished them or gave victims justice. It's why bishops and priests have been shuffled around dioceses rather than being fired and prosecuted. It's why religious institutions continually cave to powerful donors rather than stand for truth. Because more often than not, the church would rather serve the money of patrons over the weakness of God. Paul says that he would rather hand such people over to Satan. Okay, let's pause. There's no weird pentagram ritual. There's no like cultic thing that's going on here. This is a really loaded, tricky phrase, and I understand that it's very weird. But what Paul is suggesting here is that they give this person over to the realm of the powers of this world, which Paul believed belonged to Satan, the accuser, the adversary of the church's mission. Paul is saying that people who act in this way, people who think that they can act with impunity, that the rules don't apply to them, that that people uh, are just a part of their domain of power, ready to be abused or used, they're the rulers of this age. That's not the weakness of God. That's the domain of this Satan, this adversary. Paul wants the Corinthians, these people, to be a part of a different kind of kingdom. He wants them to be a part of a kingdom without a kingdom, without a king. Let this guy, sleeping with his stepmother, be a Roman patron. That's fine. But don't let him imagine that he understands the weakness of God. You, rather, be foolish. 
Don't care about money. Stop worrying about power. Those are all things that are really dumb to say today. But Paul says, live in the power of Christ, live in the weakness of God and get rid of this guy. He's trying to convince the Corinthians that this man or any other big donor is not the reason that they assemble. He is not the mission of the church. When they assemble, it is only in the name of Jesus and Jesus crucified. He continues, he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What Paul is doing here is he's digging all the way back into the story of God, going to this book of Exodus, where the Israelites were delivered by God as a group of slaves from the powers of Egypt. Once they were a people who had been dominated by power, but because of the power of God, they had been rescued from that to become different kinds of humans. This is a story about how God gave them this tradition of celebrating this Passover, this miraculous deliverance, where they eat this unleavened bread, this matzah, because the liberation of God's people happened so fast that they didn't have time to let the dough rise. Paul reminds them in this situation, in this circumstance with this man, of God's story. And he reminds them that it is also their story. They are people who have been delivered and liberated by God. And just as Jewish tradition holds that at the Passover, people have to ruthlessly go through their house and eliminate the leavened objects from their household to preserve the purity of the feast, these Christians need to rid themselves of a community structure that lets people get away with this kind of thing just because they have some money, just because they have some status. Jesus, Paul says, is the super patron of the church. It's the only patronage that matters. Not this guy who's sleeping with his stepmother. Paul is pleading with the Corinthians to be a faith community based in authenticity and truth rather than power and abuse. He says, this is not the first time. <laughs> I wrote to you in my letter previously not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate or assemble with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slander or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Okay. So, Again, Paul says this is not the first time that he's written to them. And in fact, we think there were at least five letters that Paul had written to this community. But apparently, Paul, in these letters that we do not have, had referred to things about how to live in this kingdom of God, how to, how to live pure lives, and he, he refers to that here. But notice that Paul starts off this list with that phrase that we read about earlier when referring to this guy, this pornea, this sexual immorality. But this list is not just about sexual immorality. It's not just about sex. Paul, Paul mentions the greedy in addition, perhaps another clue about this man's status. 
He mentions idolaters, people who worship other gods. He mentions gossips and drunkards and con men. The common theme here isn't just to focus on this guy's sexual sin. That just happens to be the case. Paul says people who are actively abusing the community or people in the community, people in it for themselves, the self-centered, it's just not possible for them to find common cause with the God who would rather die than use that kind of power. As a faith community, we at Crossings, we talk about helping people find their way back to God. That's like why we do everything that we do. And throughout this series and other series that we've done, we've talked about a bigger table, including people. We talk about the common good. And sometimes that feels abstract, (laughs) We've said things like, we can agree to disagree on more things than we think. There can be unity and diversity in thought. We need to let Jesus be the foundation, but everything else we can discuss. And sometimes people, I think, rightly ask, well, where is the line? What's worth dividing over? Is there something? When do we decide to disagree to agree? And I think one simple answer to that question based on this passage, is that when people want to assert power over someone else to the harm of the community, we draw a line. I think it's probably when someone privileges power over a person. When the politics of Rome, metaphorically, and its patrons, trump our integrity. When someone is harming or abusing someone through words or actions, I think there's a line there. I think that we we have to emphasize the patronage of the crucified Christ over any kind of prestige, power, or money and the things that come along with it. Because if the crucified Christ, if the weakness of God is the power we are looking to, there can't be racism. There can't be a toleration of abuse. There can't be protecting someone who's unwilling to repent or learn from mistakes. There can't be a use of power to benefit only one person. Ironically, though, it seems like the church is more famous for its war with our culture rather than its effort to protect the mission and values of Jesus, to protect the vulnerable within its own community. And Paul is explicitly against this. He mentions it, but he he brings it up again at the end of this passage. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. It's not the church, and I feel like I'm preaching to the choir probably in a place like this, but it's not the job of the church to fight those who aren't a part of the church. It's not the, jobs, it's not the church's job to be at war with culture, to win some kind of battle against secularism. It's the church's job to make sure that we are playing a different game altogether. It's our job to prevent power and money from distracting us from our calling to love and serve everyone, especially when that means admitting that we've done something wrong. So I want to ask these questions. What if we didn't feel like the vocation of the church was on the line every election cycle? What if the church started started telling people to take their checks somewhere else when the work of repentance and repair 
started to get in the way of the powerful or offending the bottom line of the rich? What if the church was famous for protecting people who were abused by religion? Those who are hurting because of the damage that's being done to the church through partisan politics and fear-mongering. What if we were known for our integrity based in faith, but also science and psychology and justice and authenticity? Because we ought to be defined by our true patron, Jesus. We ought to own the Passover story that tells us that the powers of death are being defeated in the broken body and the poured out blood. Each week, we celebrate a ridiculous feast. We gather around a table where all are welcome, so long as we agree to embody and imbibe the God who dies. This is a table that strips us of our power and our plans. This is a table that calls us to cast out the leaven of our own lives that would cause us to use people or seek our own benefit. This is Christ our Passover. This is Christ our patron, Christ our donor. This is the table that we gather around to empty ourselves of the things that might be in us that want to control or use. And we must always make sure that we prioritize this table that reminds us that we do not gather here because of any one person except for Christ and Christ crucified. Uh, Whenever you're ready, we have uh, gluten-free bread um, if you need that. And we also have grape juice if you don't want the wine. But we invite you to this meal to, to imagine ourselves as being invited to a feast that has been prepared by our patron, Christ, and that invites us to empty us of ourselves as we gather around it together. Whenever you're ready.